This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. This is the first episode of 2018. 2017 was a fantastic year. Uh, This show did 22 episodes, which was in my wheelhouse of what I wanted to do. Originally, my goal was about 24 episodes, with 22 being on the low end. And the fact that I got on the low end and only two away from my original goal, I am very proud of myself. Now you all probably are hoping, you know, this is going to be the the best of 2017. We're going to talk about the best movies, what I love the most, things like that. That's not happening. There was an article that went up on Live and Limbo already by Rachel Gordon, my former co-host, that talked about her, which she called the Live and Limbo's best movies of the year. I'll definitely link that in the show notes. But uh, my own best of the year is going to come much later when I actually get caught up with everything. So instead... What we're going to do is a recap of some of the biggest news stories and what kind of happened in the world of cinema of 2017. And I'm joined once again by Sammy Felchenfeld. How are you doing today? I am doing great and ready to talk about films as always. Good. I'm like trying to now furiously cram in all of the movies from 2017 that I missed because you can only go to the theater so many times before you're flat broke. So now I'm finding other ways to watch them. So I'm getting caught up. Like I told you before we recorded, I watched five movies yesterday. Uh, I also watched another one on Saturday night and then I went to the theaters today. So that's uh, seven movies in one in one five day span which is pretty good for me. Are you trying to now play catch-up too? Um, I'm very selective with catch-up. I'm going to, uh, as I did last year, I'm going to partially base my catch-up on what gets nominated for Oscars. Uh, yeah, that's, that's me too. I feel like the ones that I watched this weekend, with the exception of maybe a technical nomination here or there, um, most of the movies I saw probably are not going to get nominated. And once the nominations come out, that kind of consumes my life. And if I don't watch them now, I'll probably end up missing them completely because there'll always be something newer and more interesting that catches my eye. Like you can never forget Academy Award winner Suicide Squad. <laughs> Oh God! Did that actually win? Yeah, one one makeup. Oh God! I that I actually blocked that out of my memory. Wow! <laughs> I'm surprised I did that. <laughs> if you would have told me that it was just nominated, I would I would have believed you. Nominated no. and wow, what's gonna be what's gonna be the movie that we're most gonna be disgusted by that got gets a nomination or wins something? Is it gonna be like Bright, the Will Smith Netflix movie? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you don't think so, or you don't no. hope so. I don't. It's gonna, no. It's going to be Justice League. Oh God, it, <laughs> it definitely will be. I don't know. They won't. They won't win. They didn't. Anyway, that's we've talked about that enough. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So we're going to talk a bit about some of the biggest stories of 2017. And there's a whole bunch of little things that we could really talk about. But I think uh, we kind of found five 
that really kind of shaped the narrative for the year and how it's going to impact 2018 going forward. And, uh, you know, speaking of the Oscars and, um, whatever movie, Suicide Squad won, winning an Oscar, you know, what movie didn't win an Oscar or at least best picture was La La Land. And we actually watched the Oscars together last February and you were getting your shoes on ready to head out the door <laughs> when all hell broke loose and causing probably in my in my opinion the most memorable academy award event that's ever occurred in a show that's kind of had its fair share of crazy things happened yeah i i think so i i'm gonna say this because i mean in my opinion moonlight deserved to win and they did we need to put this to rest now because every award show i've seen since february they've done the joke every single one even the american music awards which was only a couple months ago this is this maybe 10 months between these awards. And the very first award, they open the envelope and say, La La Land. Oops, ha, ha, ha. So I'm really hoping at the next Oscars, either no one mentions it or it's got, or, or they just get out of the way right away and we never talk about it again. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to happen. Jimmy Kimmel's back hosting again after hosting last year. And I can definitely see him in his opening, opening monologue making a reference to it. It seems like it's just such an easy target to do. And and it makes sense for him, but I really don't want someone else to open an envelope and be like, ha, 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 la, la, land again. Because yeah. um, it's just, I mean, like, it happened, it was a huge deal, and it was really meaningful, and it'll always be tied to both those films, but now it's done. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think for as big of a deal it is, I think we often forget, like, while Moonlight was the more superior movie and definitely deserved to win – Literally having an award snatched from your hand is probably the most humiliating thing when it's broadcast to, I think, like a hundred million people around the world. Like you can never let go of the embarrassment that that must feel like, even if you understand what happened. Yeah, but I think it's it, uh, we're, we're in such a world now where there's so much coming out that in a few years, people will remember La La Land. For a few things, I don't think that's going to be one of the things it's remembered for. Um, I actually think Moonlight will be remembered more for it, not necessarily that they snatched it out of La La Land's hand, but that they were the Academy Award winner for Best Picture. So I think that I think that 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 as a society we'll move away from it. Um, I but I do agree with you. I just I'm I'm just over it. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I remember in the wake after it, once kind of all the dust settled, a lot of people were basically calling for the heads of Price Waterhouse Cooper, who is the accounting firm that handles the ballots and and all that sort of stuff. And they of course got brought back, and it's like well. Duh, like, you know, it's a pretty honest mistake. They probably understood what happened. They're going to have a better procedure of what not to do going forward and how to handle things like this. But like, it was a pretty honest mistake, albeit in front of so many people. But like, I don't think they deserve to not be the official accounting firm for the Oscars. I agree. Yeah, it's it's one of the things where it's just like, this is the part that we're now going to nitpick about, and it kind of blew up a little bit, and I'm glad that that's kind of gone down. I can see that maybe being sort of the butt of Jimmy Kimmel's joke if he makes a reference to it, and there'll be like some actor or something playing one of the guys backstage, and they'll cut to a shot of him looking sheepish or something like that. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think, like like we said, we can expect it, but I think it's going to be... It's going to be done. I know in the lead up into the red carpet, they'll talk about PWC and they'll talk about the envelopes and the whole thing. But after the Oscars are finished, I don't think it'll come up again. 
I hope so. And just like that, let's put it to bed ourselves. Uh, and speaking of putting things to bed, what probably didn't happen when you went to bed was being able to sleep properly because for some reason this year, horror movies made an absolute return to form by just absolutely raking in the dough um, between It, Get Out, Split, and Annabelle Creation. All of those horror movies made over $100 million, which is absolutely shocking. Definitely. And I think, um, I mean, I know that I know a handful of people who went to get out and purposely didn't watch trailers or anything, but just thought it was a comedy because Jordan Peele made it. Um, So so for them, it was a little bit of a surprise, but (laughs) it's pretty, I I do have to say, I mean, the Annabelle Annabelle creation is part of the Conjuring franchise, which is incredibly successful. Um, But I haven't seen any of these movies because I'm not a horror person. I'm just glad that they are doing well because it means people are going to put effort into these kinds of movies and we're not going to get the 17th reboot of Halloween or something. And I know there's a new version of Halloween this year, but um, it it means that I think we're going to get a little bit better thought out horror films. I think horror has always been that genre that's always kind of been off to the side, but anytime there's these movies that actually have real talented filmmakers behind them that care about the craft. Those movies will always do well. I think so. And I think that's what we saw with, with these four movies, especially, especially split, which I think is, uh, everyone's sort of waiting for Shyamalan to like go back to, to what he used to do. And this really was it. Like I, I'm a, I don't mind reading spoilers ever. And when I read the spoiler for this movie, I was shocked and very impressed um, and I also just thought, I mean, on its own, that scared me just from the trailer. So I didn't see it regardless. Um, but I think that it, it's a, it's more opportunities of, um, maybe not necessarily completely original because get out's the only real original among those, uh, in theory. Uh, but, uh, but it does mean that we're seeing better, we're seeing better creations on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I've only seen get out of all this and I, I really do recommend it. It is funny at times, but the funniest parts are probably because they're the scariest because it hits so close to home. The fact that like, from what I understand, when black audiences and white audiences watch the movie, they laugh at different things just kind of goes to show how on the pulse, uh, Jordan Peele has kind of tapped into the, the narrative of today. Absolutely. And, and, and it go, I think it goes without saying this movie came out almost a full year ago and it's still talked about and it's definitely going to get a lot of nominations at the Oscars, which is extraordinarily rare for pretty much any movie that, that comes out before the end of March to get talked about a year later. Um, and I think that's a huge testament to the film on its own and also the audience reaction and also the box office. Yeah. And I think. It's interesting. When the movie was first coming out, the whole narrative behind it was, oh, Jordan Peele from Key and Peele is doing a horror movie. Let's see how this is. And when it came out, it was successful. It was like, wow, Jordan Peele did a horror movie. Now he's almost kind of been removed from the equation where the movie is actually being able to be talked about on its own merits. Whereas I'm more curious to see what he's going to do next. And the idea of Jordan Peele doing a horror movie is no longer this ridiculous outlandish thing that's going around. Yeah, let him make whatever he wants. Let let filmmakers make whatever they want. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, Hollywood as a whole has kind of been, the studio system has been fighting against letting people create whatever they want because once you've been introduced to the world, that's who you are and there's no changing that. 
And the idea of, well, you know what, who says this comedic genius can't make a brilliant horror movie as well? Who says that, you know, X actor who does this can't do that type of role or a filmmaker who does this can't do that? Like, I think it's sort of breaking down a lot of barriers uh, for what a creative person, when they're in creative control, can actually do to their own career. Definitely. Um Speaking of people being in control and power, kind of taking a bit more of a dark and serious turn, um, I think there's kind of no easy way to really talk about uh, the sort of systematic abuse that was coming to light. And I think for the first time, sort of being taken seriously, you know, there's still going to be a lot of detractors and people that instantly dismiss uh, both victims, alleged victims, alleged perpetrators, things like that. And I think there's no real easy way to talk about it, but you can't deny that this has had a real impact of the way we have kind of now started shifting our view of the Hollywood system. Obviously, I think for me, the big thing is people want to point out that this is a Hollywood problem. It's not a Hollywood problem. It exists in Hollywood because there will always be positions of power because people that handle money and contracts will always be the ones calling the shots. But this is not a specific Hollywood problem. Yeah. And I think it's, I think the best way I've seen it said is that it's a workplace problem. If if there's a workplace, then there's a person in power and there's a person who could abuse that power. And I think that that's what's happened here is that these are people in a in the public eye um, that really finally people are listening, and that's that's all it takes. That people just need to listen to what pe- other people are saying and believe them, and believe what they're saying, and do something about it. And I think I think that that we are only uh, this is only scratching the surface. This is only a, a, a dent in the greater picture. I think we're going to see a lot in a in a probably in a very short time um, because. People need to like you. Eventually, no one's going to be able to hide anymore, and there's going to be those people out there that are going to to help corroborate stories and make sure that people are know that people are telling the truth about what's happened to them. And I think that we just need to uh, like I've seen some people, especially on on Reddit, Reddit being what it is, and the anonymous heart of the internet. Um, people saying, "Oh, I can't believe so and so did this. They would never do that." Well, you don't know these people. You've only seen you've only seen what what you've seen on TV or you've seen the roles they've played. And I think that that's, we have to kind of step away from ourselves as fans and consider these as other people. Again, people in positions of power who've abused that power in many ways. Um, And we need to do something about it. And I think everybody needs to do something about it. And I think it needs to start in Hollywood and needs to start in other places as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as easy as it is to, be kind of shocked uh, at these people that we either like or admire or look up to or whatever it might be uh, and how much it kind of hurts us as fans. I think the real thing that we need to remember is the victims are the real people that were hurt by this, not us as fans that we don't get to see, you know, the next season of House of Cards or whatever it might be. Yeah, and I think that we... I think that this is going to, I mean, th- these are t- the types of things that we know have been happening for a long time because they've been happening again in the workplace and in the real world for a long time. Um, and I think it's something that we just, 
we need to be more aware of and we need to be aware of how, how we interact with people. It's, it's very hard, I think, now for us to be like, yeah, well, we know this person. He did these things, but I still like them. And that is one thing. And that, and it's like you said, it, it's not about us as fans. It's about people living their lives and being able to, to do what they're doing successfully. And I think where the, you know, <clears throat> conversation also kind of ends up inevitably going to is, are we able to retroactively still analyze, appreciate, even watch previous works now that we know these things? And I think that there is no easy answer to that. You know, this same thing we can think about, uh, famous composers from hundreds of years ago that we know that they were also shitty human beings. Uh, does that sort of taint the way that their music is sort of received and listened to today? Obviously, that's kind of a loaded question, and with time, things change. But in the immediate future, um, I don't know how to answer that, and and I don't know what I can do. Like earlier this year, one of my favorite movies was Baby Driver. I don't know if that's one that I'm going to be able to easily revisit so soon. Yeah, and I think that, that we're also in an interesting position. Not necessarily interesting, but you and I are both men. We both uh, hold positions of privilege in our lives and i think that that makes it something that's even more we're able to look at it in a different way than other people can or may be able to uh depending on their own personal experiences and i think that is the, that's exactly what the question is it's how are we going to be able to look back and appreciate or understand these th- these things and these these films there's i mean this debate has been going on for a very long time for Roman Polanski and he keeps making movies and people keep seeing his movies. And there's a, there's a lot of question marks about him and his, and well, everything it's the cases keeps coming up every year. So um, I think that that it's just, it's sort of a, a question mark hanging in the air, but I think at the end of the day, we can't support people who are, we can't actively support people who, who are abusing other people and assaulting other people and, and really making lives difficult for other people. And we have to decide for ourselves what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there it's it's not something that we're going to be able to distill in in a few minutes. I know there has been a a lot of uh, ink spilled trying to parse the situation, and I don't think we're we're any closer to how we as a society can kind of. Uh, not support perpetrators of violence and be there for the victims and also live in a consumerist capitalistic society where everything has a dollar value. And we can't. And that's like you said, it's not, this isn't for us in the five minutes we're devoting to this in this, in this uh, podcast to be able to answer that question. But I think if everybody, if people haven't thought about it yet, they should start thinking mm-hmm. about it and think about what they can do. I, I eagerly await to see what 2018 will hold because while when the dam kind of first opened, there was a lot of what might seem like harsh punishments for some careers, they might only end up being slaps on the wrist. So how we deal with once the dust kind of settles with, I think will be the the true indicator of how we as a society are looking at these sort of situations. And that's going to take, that's going to take a lot more systemic changes throughout around the world in, in all kind of arenas of public life. And I think that that's, that's another conversation. And hopefully, like you said, 2018 will be a better year to see what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, 
not to shift gears so abruptly, but unfortunately, I feel like we kind of have to keep moving forward uh, with this show. And what I want to talk about is kind of Star Wars, despite it being a literal money minting machine, they seem to be having all sorts of director issues from Colin Trevorrow being kicked off of episode nine and being replaced by J.J. Abrams, who directed uh, The Force Awakens, uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller being fired right before reshoots of Solo and being replaced by Ron Howard. And then just last year, when Rogue One uh, was coming out, Gareth Edwards the, was director, had had to cede control to Tony Gilroy, who oversaw reshoots for that. So this is a franchise that has had either the number one or the two highest grossing movie of the last three years. Uh, the Last Jedi only came out a few weeks ago, and it's already the number one movie of 2017, which is absolutely shocking just how fast this franchise could make money. What is the issue with Star Wars and their directors? I think this is, I brought this up in a couple of our conversations before, but it's uh a lot of a lot of filmmaking by committee. Um, I, I have a lot of faith in Kathleen Kennedy, who's the head of Lucasfilm. She cares a lot about Star Wars, <clears throat> and a lot about uh, and she cares a lot about the Lucas uh, the, the Lucas properties in general. Um, but I think what that means is it's between her and Bob Biger at Disney and the, the Lucasfilm Story Group, which is uh, about uh, it fluctuates between five and eight people who kind of oversee the reins of all Star Wars media. And then it's the directors um, and the writers. And I think what's happened, they had a great relationship with J.J. Abrams. He would he did exactly what Lucasfilm and Disney wanted, which is why, of course, he's coming back for episode, episode nine. But also, they loved Ryan Johnson. They had an incredible relationship with him. They want to bring him back for a trilogy of brand new non-Skywalker movies. Um, but it looks like there's only a handful of directors that they really want to work with. And I think those are the people who can who are both able to let their vision come through, but also are able to, to, to play within the lines. Um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller are, are my, kind of my favorite directing team, and I think that they're hilarious, and I've loved them since Clone High, which was one of their very first projects. Um, and I think that they, they, couldn't, they couldn't play in the, the Lucasfilm sandbox, despite the fact that Solo, I think, is going to be a fairly, like if not, if not a game-changing movie, I think it'll just be a fun, a fun kind of action-adventure, fast-paced, comedic whatever um i don't i don't really know what's going on but i think it's i think it's that disney and and lucasfilm sort of look at the the cuts and look at the process and just say uh okay this is our decision it's it that's that um and i think that, that these d- directors are kind of powerless to do anything about it i read an interesting article uh about the idea that um, we saw a recent trend trend sort of about three or four years ago where these indie directors uh, who made a really interesting, fascinating either first or second film get promoted to handle these multi-hundred million dollar franchises, whether it's in the Marvel world or here or the different other places. Um, are we kind of seeing the end of these young, new, auteur-ish directors on the rise being handed these big tent poles? I think actually what we're going to see instead is that um, instead of being given the tent poles, I think we're going to see these directors given more shots. I think they're going to be given uh, films with slightly bigger budgets or or better marketing support for their a bit more auteurish films. Um, but I think you're right. I think we're going to see a little bit less of the. Um, <laughs> to be honest, I think Josh Trank was the start of this uh, the start of this process because he was going to be directing 
I believe Rogue One originally. Um, and, uh, and it all kind of started with when his fantastic four was not so fantastic. Um, and I think, I think that's, what's going to happen. I think there's going to be more opportunities for people to prove themselves. Um, I turn to, it's a specific example, but, um, I saw the greatest showman last week. Um, and it was fun. I had fun with it. Um, but I was reading that, that the director who made it had only ever done commercials. And so he moved from commercials to an $80 million original musical. Um, and I can only imagine how challenging that was for him and also for Fox as the, as the studio. Um, and apparently a, a lot of James Mangold came in to help with the reshoots. Totally, totally amicable. It wasn't a get rid of this original director, but it was the scale seemed to be too big. It seemed to be too challenging. And I think that's what's happening. Some of these directors can handle it and some of them can't. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember when this trend first started happening, I was super excited because I love the idea of these stale blockbusters getting a real injection of adrenaline from these new creative filmmakers, because everything had become so stale. Uh, and it seems to just not be working. There seems to be just too big of a divide between filmmakers who want to do their own thing, but with so many pockets to please it's kind of impossible to do unless you have someone that's very agreeable to kind of work with every the framework of what everyone else wants and that's not something that can be uh learned on the job exactly and i think that's why some of the more tour directors just kind of stick with what they do and like i said they get a bit more support because their previous film was successful or whatever. I mean, look at Denis Villeneuve. He, he worked his way up pretty quickly, but that's because his films are great. But I'm thinking about uh, Primer is one of my favorite movies from 2004, and Shane Carruth, who created it, has only made one other movie since. And his next film I'm looking at apparently includes a cast that has Anne Hathaway, Keanu Reeves, Tom Holland, and Daniel Radcliffe. So who knows? Uh, he's never really done. He's never really done a film. He's only really done two films, and both of them were very, very small, low budget, um, but very interest, interesting sci-fi. Um, so it's it's hard to say. I think, but I think what we're not going to see is um, we're going to see less and less of the next Marvel movie movie um, picking a director whose last film had a five million dollar budget. It's going to be those those middle of the road ones. It's going to even be the type of people who direct um, those hundred million dollar horror films they're the ones who are going to be pushed up i mean if they want to um to to do these kinds of films i think mm -hmm. yeah i i wish we could return more to the mid-size blockbuster where you know obviously movies have kind of jumped in proportion of how much they cost to make but this you know 40 to 50 dollar million dollar movie i think is kind of the perfect leverage point for these more auteurish directors to really work in their zone while getting the experience that they need to work with a much bigger scope of everything. Absolutely. Arrival, which is one of my favorite films as well, had a $47 million budget. That would according be a perfect to example. Yeah, that would be a yeah. perfect example and, of something like that. And more people, honestly, more people need to be making, or more not more people, but the, the studios and production companies need to be okay with with doing this, and that's actually why I like STX and A24, both as as um, as studios. Just they're the ones who are doing the smaller budget things, but giving filmmakers the space to still make their films. Yeah, I I would not be opposed to doing an entire episode just about A24 with all the fantastic work that they've been doing. But speaking about studios in general, uh, I think the one that kind of is going to have the biggest implications out of everything that happened is that Disney 
is now in the process of buying 21st Century Fox, which now means, uh, if I remember correctly, about 40% of all entertainment will be produced by a single studio, which is one, staggering, and two, when you think about it, a little terrifying. I, I do think it's terrifying. You you know, and I'm sure listeners know my love for Disney, and even I think it's a little bit much. Um, I think the only way for it to really work is for, for 21st Century Fox to be as independent as possible just under the Disney banner. Um, one of the things I think this means is that Disney might see its first ever um, kind of not first ever, but it's first a large amount of Oscars for a film that they make because they really make they they get animated Oscars, they get music Oscars, and they get some technical Oscars. But it's it's rare for them to get uh, best picture, best actor, all those kinds of things. Whereas you have Fox and especially Fox Searchlight that tends to pump out pretty uh, critical and, and awards friendly films. But besides that, um, I think it is a bit of a juggernaut. I think that at the same time. We are also seeing some smaller companies pop up that are actually taking some of the some of the share. Part of that is the benefit of uh, of working with things like Netflix. But um, it, I think that there's definitely issues there. As as happy as I would be about X Men and Fantastic Four reverting back to Marvel, um, I think that there's there, there's definitely some red flags there. And to be honest, I think the deal will go through, but not in its current form. I think some things will have to stay with the Murdochs just in order for for it to be approved by American regulators. Yeah, it's that's something that I have no idea how is going to turn out because in this day and age, it seems like almost every single big merger that should not go through goes through. You know, you hear about the one story a year that a merger sort of falls through because it doesn't uh, – it creates monopolies and things like that uh, that are illegal. But in this sense, I'm, I'm terrified that it's probably going to go through and there's going to be some really big wide-scale uh, issues that arise. You know, you hear the odd horror story about uh, small town theaters when the next uh, Star Wars movie or other huge Disney tentpole movie is coming out, this sort of constricting demands that these theaters are placed under if they want to show that movie at all. Uh, something like for four weeks, it has to be the most played movie in your theaters, bar none. They need a to guarantee a certain amount of percentage or else the studio, the theater has to pay more money for the movies and things like that were just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, they tried to pull it with Rogue One and enough theaters banded together and said no, uh, they would not show the movie that Disney relaxed the regulations and they were able to show it as normal. If they're owning this much content where, you know, it seems like now almost every month there is a giant Disney movie coming out these sort of small town players are not going to be able to push back. Uh, don't be surprised if Disney buys a movie house company pretty soon. I, I'd anticipate that it would happen in, the, in this year or next year. I think that they'll likely buy AMC or something similar. Um, and there's a ton of regulations against it, but they'll find their way to do it. They won't do it in any country other than America though. Um, and the main being is in Canada, we have three major chains and the market shares Cineplex has most of it, but that's only for part of the country. Whereas in the States, there are a lot of uh, chains that are pretty wide ranging. Um, yeah, I think that I think it's just sort of creating this gigantic behemoth of a company that um, I mean, everybody also spells Disney's doom every day and a half, but they forget that merchandising in the parks makes up, I think, more than 70 percent of their revenue. So they're fine. Um, and I think that fo- that having Fox is really going to be a focus on entertainment more than anything. Um, and I and it's just going to be interesting to see what that means in terms of values. Fox 
and especially FX, so Fox Television Studios, which is part of this deal, has made some really intriguing stuff lately. Um, and I think that, there, there, I don't know, there could be, there's benefits and there's, there's, there's not benefits. At the end of the day, though, I am grateful that Comcast is not the one buying Fox because it's bad enough that, uh, that there, there are so many kind of carriers of, of television. Um, and even, I believe Comcast owns some movie houses as well. Um, and they're kind of buying up all the, all the creators of media are the ones who, who are, who are airing TV or films and things like that. So the, this is, I, I wouldn't say this is the lesser of two evils, but it's definitely better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you bringing up the idea of them purchasing theaters, I think is something that if if they do try to float that is going to be one of the biggest issues for me. Because interestingly, bringing it back to the Fox side of things as in the original Fox, uh, William Fox, I believe was his name was originally a movie theater owner, uh, who ended up started working into movies. And uh, he was part of the reason why there was a big trust busting deal, where it said that studios could not own their own theaters, because they were, they had a real ownership of everything that was going on and causing a lot of problems for a lot of people uh, with very few people being the ones that got to reap all of the benefits between William Fox and the Goldwyn brothers. They were the, they were the issue. They were the the main catalyst behind breaking up that, that ownership blockade. Um, So if they tried to do that again, that'd be really fascinating and also terrifying. I think the only thing we can do is wait and see, and I think we'd have to follow up on this if and when the, the deal goes through and depending what it looks like. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, so that said, those were the five biggest news stories of 2017. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the highest grossing films of 2017. By the numbers, we have 10 movies that all made an impressive amount of money. I will go through them in reverse order. Coming in at number 10 is The Fate of the Furious, which made $225 million. Logan at number 9, eking out The Fate of the Furious, $226 million. Despicable Me 3 at $264 million. Thor Ragnarok at $311 million. It with $327 million. Spider-Man Homecoming, $334 million. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, $389 million. Wonder Woman with $412 million. Beauty and the Beast with $504 million. And topping it out, that came out December 15th. So in only 16 days, Star Wars The Last Jedi made $517 million. That's crazy. 
<clears throat> I agree. Um, I know we're not talking about international, but the, the numbers kind of balance out um, with really just a couple a couple things not showing up in the domestic. I think obviously the most the most important thing that that pops up, nothing is truly original in the top 10. And people kind of get upset about that, but it's never really been like that, or at least hasn't been like that as long as I've been alive. It's often sequels, remakes, adaptations. It's things people know is what draw people to theaters. Um, and and I think that uh, none of this is a huge surprise for me. I'm not surprised Disney has uh, has a number of the top, uh, what is it, four I think they have. Um, but I think that, that what is interesting is that there is a little bit of originality within the realm of sequels here. So we have Wonder Woman, which I would say is an adaptation, but is also part of the DC franchise. Um, and then we also have Logan, which I'd say is a pretty unique sequel as the, the Wolverine trilogy goes. Um, and even Spider-Man, which is a reboot slash sequel slash adaptation slash just part of the MCU. Um, so it's not just, uh, it's not just a bunch of movies with the number two and three in them. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that stands out the most is five of the 10 are superhero movies. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you know what? I'm I am pretty surprised that The Fate of the Furious, I know it always does well the Furious movies, but that it was able to crack the top 10 was was pretty impressive to me considering I haven't seen one since I think the second one. But our parents still see them. And that's who that's who's who's uh who's raking that up. It's the same thing as Despicable Me 3. We have there's generations that are specifically going to see that. What I actually think is is the biggest story out of the, the the top five more than anything is definitely Wonder Woman, and we've talked about it already in 2017 of just how important it is that it was so successful. But it's also it was a great movie. Um, I, I mean, I'm not saying none of these were great movies, but it was just as an as a first uh, as a first film for this character ever, and it's just as an origin story. Just so much great stuff going for it. Um, but people. Yes, there's a sequelitis problem, and I think there's a franchiseitis problem, but people are still seeing them. People are still enjoying them. Uh, some of these films, I think specifically Beauty and the Beast, benefits from people going to see it twice in theaters, which is what uh, Force Awakens really benefited from when it came out. So I think that that's part of the story of uh, of this top ten, which I don't think is hugely different from the last few years, especially because this was a, yet another massive year for the box office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just outside of the top 10, at number 11, we have Justice League, uh, which is interesting that um, it did manage to do so well despite all the, the negative attention it got. And then at number 12, the one true original movie, uh, Dunkirk. I, I'm very happy Dunkirk did the, this well, even. Um, and I would say, I mean, Coco is a bit lower and Get Out's a bit lower. Like, they're not that much lower, but it, it, there is a difference. Dunkirk is the last movie that didn't break 200 million domestic. Um, and it was, it was a fantastic film. And I'm not surprised it's Christopher Nolan brought the most successful, uh, completely original film. And I believe in the, in the top 20 or 25, there's only a handful of original films that aren't adaptations or linked to a franchise or something like that um which is of course a ser- like it's a serious challenge to be able to do that and really break through mm-hmm. yeah in the top 25 uh only dunkirk and coco are the only non-sequel non-adaptation sort of thing and if you take out coco dunkirk is the only live action original movie uh in the top 25 which is pretty interesting uh it's basically saying that christopher nolan is a franchise upon himself Oh, absolutely. He's one of those people. Uh, honestly, it's like Spielberg in the 80s and 90s is one of those people. Oh, he made a new movie. Let's go see it. Um, it's pretty dependable in terms of the quality for sure. Um, but I think what's nice about uh, what's what's nice about this 
top 10, top 20, is that we're seeing a bit more interesting franchise successes. So Spider-Man was always going to do well. Um, Guardians, the first one was a surprise and did very well. Thor Ragnarok, I think this is the most successful of the Thor movies. It is. Um, and it's definitely my favorite. Thor movie and possibly my favorite um, MCU movie as well. Um, so there's, there's definitely things coming out coming out of the woodwork there. I think definitely the biggest surprise by far is it. Um, not even just its $327 million, but even its $120 million opening, which was a massive shock to pretty much everybody. Um, I think it was the number two, number three opening of the year. Um, it's the number four opening of the year, so as Box Office Mojo tells me. And I think that that's, that's just amazing that it is something that's a little bit more different, um, and it's breaking through to the top as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Not adjusted for inflation, it's the highest grossing horror movie of all time. Adjusted for inflation, um, The Exorcist will will always beat out everything because that movie did an obscene amount of money for its time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and something I do I do want to say, just just kind of speaking to the sheer amount of dollar figures we're seeing here. Um, going back to 2014, uh, the number one top grossing movie of that year was American Sniper, which was an adaptation as well. Um, but that was a very different year. It was kind of, I mean, 2015 was a massive year, so it's no surprise. But that year had Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Lego Movie. Kind of, again, more sequels and things like that, but nothing kind of, the, the year sort of topped out at $350 million. And then now we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing Star Wars and Beauty and the Beast over 500 million, Wonder Woman over 400 million. There's very, very successful um, films. And I think that's what we're going to see from now on. The top 10 is always going to be very strong sequels or franchise films, but either they're getting better and better or they're just getting more popular. One one last thing I want to kind of comment about Dunkirk to bring that back to that is from what I understand, it sold the least amount of tickets uh, in the top 25, I think. Oh, I'm looking at right now. Yeah, it, it's pretty low comparatively to everything else. Um, what that means is that people are willing to upgrade to the 3D or IMAX to the, sorry, the IMAX, because it was not shot in 3D. It was shot in IMAX to the IMAX ticket package to be able to see this movie where Christopher Nolan was able to get out and say, Hey, uh, I understand IMAX costs more, but uh, if you want to really experience the movie the way I intended it to be, you need to see it in IMAX. And that's what I did. I saw an IMAX film, 70 millimeter film, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it was on the suggestion of numerous people who had already done it saying, this is the way you have to see it. And I'm, I'm grateful for that, first of all, because I don't like 3D unless something is filmed in 3D. And nowadays, a lot of stuff isn't filmed in 3D. It's just post-converted still. Um, whereas I'd ra- I will gladly pay more for the bigger format, the better format, if that's the way it's meant to be seen. Yeah. Yeah, I I saw it on on 70 mil too. I today I just went out and saw Star Wars. I specifically did not see it in 3D because I knew it wouldn't have added anything to it. It didn't add anything to it, in Go. my opinion. And I and I, I I mean I haven't talked to you about this yet, but I really liked it. But it did the 3D didn't add anything to it. <laughs> Most of the time, it does not. Uh, all right, we're gonna take uh, another quick music break, and when we get back, we're gonna wrap things up with a little bit of predictions.
So the last thing we want to talk about, we were talking about 2017 all episode. We're going to look forward only a month and a half uh, to the Oscars of 2018. We're going to try to predict uh, just the winners of some big categories and then the best picture nominations themselves. Um, so it's it's going to be kind of a weird out there where we're all going to laugh at our mistakes uh, because our very next episode is going to be a nomination recap and we can all laugh at how terribly incorrect we all were anyways. Uh, does that sound Speak funny? Speak for yourself. Yeah? I'm, going to, I'm going to get everything right. Oh, oh, okay. Then. Maybe I need to <laughs> No, adjust. I was way off last year, so I will be wrong this year too. All right. Uh, so I figure let's start with the supporting actor categories. Who do you think is going to win for best supporting actor and best supporting actress i don't really care about uh who's going to be nominated uh otherwise if you want to say you know you were battling in your mind between one or two people you can say that but i want a definitive answer of who you think is going to win okay i'm going to preface this by saying i haven't seen a lot of stuff yet so part of this is based on zeitgeist and what i've been reading what i've been hearing um so my guesses predictions best supporting actor army hammer and best supporting actress mary j blige Okay. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, Army Hammer for uh, Call Me By Your Name and uh, Mary J. Blige for Mudbound. Uh, That's pretty interesting. Huh. Okay. Uh, for me, uh, I'm going to go with, uh, Willem Dafoe from the Florida Project and Holly Hunter from the Big Sick. Um, any thoughts on, on, on my picks? Do you think I'm going to be way off based with that? No, I think Willem Dafoe is, is probably the odds on favorite. Um, and I, I know almost nothing about the big six. So when I was looking at potential nominees, I just, I can't say anything about it. Uh, so I, I just couldn't consider that. Whereas, um, I, I know a little bit more about the other, a lot of the other potential options. Okay. Um, now we're going to move over to best actor and actress. Who do you have for that? Uh, best actor. I have Gary Oldman. Um, and this is again, not based on seeing the film, but seeing a lot of clips, um, and being very impressed. And I think that it's finally her time, uh, Best Actress, uh, Saoirse Ronan, um, and that's for Lady Bird, which I have not yet seen, but again, seen seen pieces of, and I am dying to see very soon. Um, and I've heard that she's phenomenal. I've been following her since she was a, like a, even before her Peter Jackson movie, like 10 years ago, I've, I've been, I've been a big fan of hers, and I really hope that, that this is the year for her. I'm, I'm worried that Gary Oldman is going to win because he's never won before and he's kind of touted as the best actor to never win an Oscar. Uh, he should have won, you know, 20 years ago. And every time he, he gets nominated, it gets brought up. Uh, I've, I've only seen the trailer and I, and I probably shouldn't judge it this harshly, but the trailer just looks so god awful that I have no interest in seeing Darkest Hour, even though <laughs> Oldman does look good in it. You're going to have to see it anyway. So oh, I know, I know. It just looks so by the numbers, biopicy, rousing speech, and everything comes together at the end. And it doesn't seem like it looks like it's that complicated of a movie about uh, what is a very complicated uh, and divisive figure in history. Well, I think what makes it more interesting is that it's basically the the Winston Churchill side of Dunkirk. It's essentially the exact same time period, um, and that's that. I think is alone makes it an interesting piece as a sort of sister movie to that. But at the same time, I think the reason I chose Gary Oldman is basically why you said <laughs> it's his time to win. Yeah, uh, for me, you know, I think. I, with my supporting actors, I went with two, you know, solid veterans who have both been nominated before. I think Holly Hunter has won before 
if I'm not mistaken, um, for as good as it gets. If I'm, am I remembering that correctly? I'm checking for you now. Okay. Well, you check for me. She she did win. She won the Academy Award for the piano. Oh, for the piano, not for as good as it gets. Right. Um, and Defoe has been nominated, never won before. I think both of those are going to be kind of, you know, the, the Academy picks for career lifetime achievement award sort of thing i think for the actor category it's going to be the opposite where it's going to be two relatively younger performers with actor uh timothy chalamet for calling me by your name and Sir ronan like you picked as well for ladybird both of them being you know pretty big upsets i look at you know the front runners for actor and other than Oldman and maybe Daniel Day Lewis, you know, it's kind of a wide open field as far as what the Academy might favor, uh, for, you know, sort of the lifetime achievement award, since that's sort of what they do. They always don't give the award out for the movie you deserve. And next time around, they do give it to you. Yeah. And that's why I think, uh, I think Timothy Chalamet, I, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, I think that that uh, I mean, unless the peach gets nominated too, but that's its own thing. Um, I just don't think it's going to, it's going to happen yet, and I think it's going to be the kind of thing we're going to see him a lot, and I think it's going to happen soon. But I don't know. I just have a feeling. You're you're I you're not wrong. Like if I were <laughs> to put money on it, I would probably bet money on Gary Oldman before I would Chalamet. But you know, this is me going out on left field and hoping that it is. Um, now, who do you got for best director? I have a three-way tie, and I know you said definitive, but I, I can't Sammy. help it. I know. Um, I, it'll be easier for me when the nominations come out. But um, I think uh, Christopher Nolan um, and Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig. <laughs> I'm going to pressure you. Give me one name out of those three. Who's going to win and who I think should win? Uh, who is going to win? Christopher Nolan. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, I am going with Nolan as well. I think it's also going to be a bit of a, a three-way race, but instead of Peel, I think it's going to be Martin McDonough for Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I know when that movie came out, it got a ton of buzz, and now it kind of seems that all the detractors are coming out about that movie, um, but I still think there might be enough buzz behind the way he crafted that movie, especially the screenplay, to kind of propel him forward uh, for the director nomination and possibly to win. But I do think it's going to be Christopher Nolan. Time will tell. Time will tell. <laughs> I think I think it will be Nolan because everything that he kind of did that sort of revitalized the industry that you can make an original uh, movie of such scale and grandeur and it be so well received. I think the Academy would be remiss to sort of pat itself on the back for that. Um and then on the flip side, Gerwig, you know, um, the, I've kind of picked up this language from, from listening to another podcast though. You must remember this where, uh, Katrina Longworth, who, who runs the Karina Longworth, who runs that, um, has always said that Oscars, Oscar members vote on what they think is a reflection of themselves in their industry for the year. So if ever there was another time for uh, a female fronted film to kind of win big, it might be Lady Bird and Greta Gerwig. Uh, but if that's not the case, it's going to go with Nolan. I, I definitely agree. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm not, I'm not crazy. No, but I, I would love to see Patty Jenkins nominated, even though she won't win. 
I know it would be nice to see her nominated, but I think with, with there only being five slots, I don't know because I think you're right with it being the three you picked. I'm pretty sure McDonough will also be there. That only leaves one slot. Are they going to go with Spielberg for the post? Are they going to go with who directed um, the darkest hour anyways? Oh, I don't remember. Was that, was that just directed by committee? <laughs> Gary Oldman. It's Gary Oldman uh, directed it himself. No, I'm joking. Um, it is directed by Joe Wright. Joe, all right, who did Atonement? Yes, who's another yep. Academy favorite. So you know, I wouldn't be surprised if either him or Spielberg or some other you know kind of legacy player also pops into that slot and, and moves people like Jenkins out of the way. And I would absolutely love. I know this would never happen, but Best Director is traditionally almost always original films. Um, I would love to see a Best Adapt, Best Adaptation, or Sequel Director because <laughs> it's not easy. It's not. I mean, I think um, I think that that Taika Waititi took Thor Ragnarok to an entirely new level um, that the franchise had never been at. Yes, it's not an Oscar-winning directing role, but to do what he did for the franchise and those characters would be. I think it should be recognized in some way. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I think the other true dark horses we've got is Sean Baker for the Florida Project and Guillermo del Toro for Shape of Water. Guillermo del Toro won't get nominated, unfortunately. I don't know why, but I just know it won't happen. I know. He doesn't seem to be like truly loved by the Academy, which is weird because he seems like he would be such a good sort of spokesperson for them considering the amount of love and passion he has for film. Yeah, but that only goes so far for for uh, for the Academy, unfortunately. Maybe, maybe. Uh, all right, now can you name you know the seven, eight, or nine potential Best Picture nominees? I can, and most of these, if if not all of them, save for one or two, will be nominated. Um, and uh, I could, if you want, I could tell you what I think will win a Best Picture. But my nominees are "Call Me by Your Name," Three Billboards," "Florida Project," "Get Out," "Dunkirk," "Lady Bird," "Shape of Water," "The Post," and "Wonder Woman." Wow. Okay. <laughs> you got a, uh, you got a couple interesting curveballs in there. I like it. Um, I'll go with my list first and then you tell me who you think is going to win. Uh, I went mine in alphabetical order. I, mine going to start off with a, a curveball with Blade Runner 2049. Call me by your name. Dunkirk, get out. Lady Bird, the big sick, the Florida project, the shape of water and three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I only named nine because they, for some reason, aren't doing 10 every year. So I decided to artificially handicap myself at nine as well. Um, so who do you think is going to win? Hold up. You think Blade Runner will be nominated? That would be wonderful. That is my, that is my curveball where I think there might be enough support from the technical side of the Academy to sort of propel it up. That's true, actually. Gravity did get nominated that year, didn't win any of the main awards, but won nearly every technical award. So that it's something that could happen, but it's up against Dunkirk, which is quite a challenge. But anyway, I think the Florida Project's going to win. Really? I think I think because it will not it will probably not get a single other win and it will win best picture. Wow. So a feat that has only been done once before by Grand Hotel. Uh you think in this day and age that, that might be a possibility. That's really interesting. I think that's where the Oscars are going and I think that's that's a bit of what happened at Moonlight. My other my other option is call me by your name, but to be honest, I think the Academy, especially the old farts are going to be like, "Oh, we did a queer movie last year." Yeah, I think I I kind of feel the same way where they already gave an award to the gay movie uh that they don't feel that they need to do it again um unfortunately instead of just judging the movie on its own merits. I have not seen it yet, so I can't really comment much more than that. I think 
while Christopher Nolan is going to win best director, I think Lady Bird is going to be the best picture winner. And I, and I hope the trend continues where picture and director are not the same winners because I truly believe I agree. that they do not need to be connected at the hip. Unless it's just that good of a movie, which only comes once in a while. Um, and I think it's the same thing. I, I agree with you. I think Lady Bird has a good chance as well. The one thing I'm, I'm a little sad about in advance is that Get Out is just not going, it's going to be nominated left, right, and center. It's just not going to get the 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 winning love. And again, I think that there's going to be people on the Academy saying, why is this here? Why is this nominated? Um, Jordan Peele, Peele even said, why was this nominated for the Golden Globe in the comedy musical category, which oh, makes yeah. no sense. Um, and so I think I, it's going to be interesting. I, I, I really like the, the, the six or seven guaranteed nominees um, as they are i think that these are these are really good films i think the post is going to be there as a oh spielberg did a movie with meryl streep and tom hanks so it gets nominated for best picture (laughs) yeah i purposely left that out because that's me hoping that it won't you know i i haven't seen a ton about it it seems to only exist in the uh commercials between tv show world where i have not heard anyone that's seen it i have not really seen any reviews from it i'm not seeing any real praise for it It sort of just sort of exists there yeah and i think it's i feel like there's a movie like that every single year but sometimes they kind of come out of the woodwork and and take the attention and sometimes i don't know it's it's sometimes a science fiction movie gets nominated for best picture (laughs) yeah i i would i would love that um in your thing about Get Out, I think that's that's interesting. I think where it might stand a chance is original screenplay because the screenplay awards, especially original screenplay, always seems to go to if it doesn't go to the eventual best picture movie, it goes to the one that the Academy wishes that they could give the best picture movie to, but will no way in hell do that. Yeah, and I think that'll be interesting to see for sure. Yeah, you could, cause you, like, I, I basically call it the Pulp Fiction Award, where Pulp Fiction, uh, won, uh, best original screenplay for Tarantino, and that sort of set the template of, uh, that weird outsider movie that is really fascinating and probably the best movie of the year, but we're not actually gonna call it that. Yeah, but so that way people can still talk about it, though. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so that's that. That was uh, our early predictions. Like I said, we're going to do a, a nomination recap once that comes out, and all of this is going to be proven moot. Uh, but who cares? It was fun while we did it anyways, um, <laughs> and I always enjoy talking about it with you uh, in particular, Sammy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on once again. Yeah. Uh, music from this week's episode is by Possum. They are a psych rock band from Toronto. Uh, check out the show notes where I'll have links where you can follow them and find more of their music. Um, and please, like I said, check out the show notes on liveandlimbo.com where I'm going to uh, list a bunch of things, including links to some of the things that we talked about and uh, who we predicted to win the Oscar. So that way in the future, everyone can come back and laugh at our mistakes or at least my mistakes since, Sammy, you already uh, said that yours are going to all be right anyways. They're all going to be wrong for sure. <laughs> <laughs> follow the show on Twitter at ContraZoomPod. Follow me at DGA. Yay. And uh, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>